Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Arimus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, September 11th. This week, we'll discuss California's landmark decision to eliminate cash bail for defendants in criminal cases and the controversial system that will replace it. Instead of the grossly unfair practice of having defendants buy their freedom while they await trial, California will now rely partially on a risk assessment algorithm to determine who will return to court or who poses a threat to the public. While ending the cash bail practice was seen as a huge win in many circles, activists now fear replacing cash bail with an algorithmic risk assessment could even further exacerbate racial profiling in the criminal justice system. We'll also talk about a fresh debate over who gets to fact-check the news that appears in your Facebook feed. There was an outcry in media circles on Tuesday after Facebook flagged a story from the liberal outlet Think Progress as false, all because the conservative outlet The Weekly Standard had taken issue with the headline. The story about Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's statements on abortion has become a sort of test case for the credibility of Facebook's fact-checking efforts. Then we'll be joined by Professor Safiya Umoja Noble, author of Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Lately, media coverage and congressional hearings have focused on potential anti-conservative bias among the big tech companies. But Professor Noble's work suggests we may actually have a much different problem. And lastly, we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of our favorite stories we saw on the web this week. Hey, Will, how you doing? I'm good. I'm, I'm keeping a wary eye on Hurricane Florence, uh, which I guess is on track to hit the East Coast later this week. How about you out in the East Bay? Uh, you know, it is uh, fall everywhere else in the country, which means it's pretty summery out here. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing fine. I just love the Bay Area. Yeah, September is beautiful out there. All right. So pretty much every week we start out the show saying it's been a really busy week in tech news. I'm going to mix it up this week and say it actually hasn't been that busy a week. That might be because of the big Apple event. Uh, which is on Wednesday, which always steals the headlines for a couple days in the tech industry. And uh, we're actually going to have a special mini episode of If Then on that event later this week. We'll break down all the new gadgets that Apple announces and what they mean for the hundreds of millions of people who rely on its products. But for this episode, we want to highlight a story that has gotten less attention in tech circles, maybe more so in criminal justice circles, actually. The story is that California has become the first state to end cash bail. That, of course, is the practice by which people 
are ordered to pay money in order to stay out of incarceration while they await trial. That sounds like good news, but the system that's replacing it has raised concerns of its own. That's right. California became the first state in the country to abolish cash bail and instead put the decision in the hands of judges, thanks to a new law signed by Governor Jerry Brown at the end of last month. That means that poor people won't be kept in jail because they don't have the money to pay their way out. Instead, a judge will decide whether or not the person poses a threat to safety and should stay in. All right. So so that sounds pretty reasonable to me. I mean, it is kind of weird that we just have this standard in the country where if you can afford to pay bail, then you can walk the streets. But if you can't, then you have to stay in jail. But I think you're going to tell me that there's a hitch here, right? So, yeah, criminal justice reform groups were initially in favor of this and they were celebrating the advance of the legislation. But a change to the bill before it was passed actually caused many to withdraw their support. And that's because the new bill, the bill that Governor Brown signed, uh, which actually goes into effect at the end of October, includes a provision that says that while some that were arrested with misdemeanors will be released within 12 hours of seeing a judge, in other cases, an algorithm will now be used to determine a person's risk of fleeing before a trial or of being arrested again. And that algorithm is actually going to create what's being called a risk score. And that is going to be compared to people that were arrested that have similar profiles. And they're going to be comparing that uh, with data from the criminal justice system. So that's the score is kind of being compiled using history and data that's been collected from the criminal justice system. The problem with all of this, though, is that the criminal justice system is riddled with well-documented racial bias. And if this new algorithm is going to be using data that's collected from law enforcement, from criminal justice work that we already know perpetuates all kinds of racial profiling and racial bias and unfairly treats black people in this country, then there's a strong chance that the data that's being kind of loaded into this algorithm is going to be used to perpetuate that. And people who live in communities that are already over-policed may be deemed at high risk just because they're already there, right? Because the data is set up to show that. So when the risk assessment software was added to the California bill, many activists and criminal uh, justice reform organizations like the ACLU, for example, actually pulled their support. Yeah, I'm a little surprised, actually, that California is going forward with this because some of the problems with these algorithms that you mentioned have been pretty well documented. Um, I know for one thing, I read about them in Kathy O'Neill's great book, Weapons of Math Destruction. And and the issue, as I understand it, is so if you're writing a program to figure out who is likely to commit another crime, you might go through all the data and find out, oh, you know, people who have been pull, pulled over by police more than three times are more likely to be sent back to jail again. But if it turns out the police are pulling over black people for for without cause at a higher rate, then they are more likely to be identified by that algorithm as uh, a risk at risk of recidivism. And and on top of that, I mean, if if you have biases in the the judicial system, if you have biases in juries where black people are more likely to be convicted, there are just all kinds of ways that the that those could get built into the system and lead to people being unfairly flagged as a risk to society, even if they really aren't at all. You're right. I think it's uh, incredibly obtuse that California would, uh, in deciding to reform an already unfair system, uh, you know, inject another piece into the legislation that could perhaps perpetuate a lot of the unfairnesses that advocates were trying to rally against. 
We don't know exactly how this is going to play out in practice, but risk assessment algorithms are used elsewhere in the country, and we have seen uh, documentation of that perpetuating um, all kinds of biases. Yeah, and and so the, the people who are building these algorithms say they are aware of it. In fact, they will tell you that they're trying to reduce bias in the system or reduce unfairness because if it, it, you just leave it up to a judge, then that judge's personal prejudices could come into play and determine people's fate. Whereas if you can, you can, you know, develop some more objective measure of somebody's risk, uh, then, then that could maybe be combined with the judge's discretion or maybe could replace the judge's discretion. And in an ideal world, if you've got the algorithm perfect, then that could, could make the outcomes more fair. The problem is, as we know, that, that these algorithms never are perfect because the data that, that goes into them isn't perfect. So I guess what I what I hope is that it, there's pressure applied in California by people who are aware of these pitfalls to make sure that the algorithm is transparent. I mean, one of the one of the scary things about an algorithm that can decide the fate of your life is if you don't even have access to what data it's using or what criteria it's using to make those decisions. If the algorithm could be made transparent, if people could work on it and scrutinize it, at least that would be a step toward uh, understanding the the unfairnesses that might be built in. Yeah, I mean, it's true that judges are racist too. But, you know, hopefully you would be able to argue with the judge or argue before a judge. Uh, it's really hard to make your case against a number that's spit out from a printer. So, you know, these are just two incredibly different uh, adversaries when we're talking about trying people who are trying to seek justice, uh, whether we're talking about a human being or a software program. Um, I'm not sure how this will play out in California, but I know it hasn't played out uh, in other places across the country very well. And we have seen systemic biases being perpetuated. It's certainly a punch in the gut to people who are hoping that this law would uh, would make things much better. Yeah, it'll definitely be followed closely by by other states. So zooming out from California, we can talk about Facebook, which is a company that's used by 2.1, maybe more than that, billion people across the world. And as Facebook always is, it is embroiled in another controversy. This time it involves fact checking. Ever since the 2016 election, Facebook has been trying to fight false news and misinformation on its platform in various ways. And one of those efforts is a partnership with third party fact checking organizations like PolitiFact. But this week, we saw the liberal website Think Progress had one of its stories flagged on Facebook as false. This was a story about Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's record on abortion. And it turned out that the fact checker who flagged it as false was the Weekly Standard. That's an explicitly conservative outlet. So, well, maybe you can walk us through how Facebook gave veto power to a publication like the Weekly Standard to determine what liberal outlets can publish. Yeah, that's a question that a lot of people are asking, and I don't think Facebook has a good answer to that. To zoom out for a second, the problem of fake news that Facebook was originally trying to tackle was stuff like teenagers in Macedonia who, who built these websites that would just make up stories or, or plagiarize uh, fantastical stories uh, that had no basis in reality just to get uh, clicks and shares on Facebook and make advertising money. Um, there were also some hyper-partisan sites in the United States that would, again, just would sort of make up wild conspiracies about Hillary Clinton or about Donald Trump and get tons of views. So that's what started all this. And the question is, how do we get from there to a situation where the Weekly Standard is flagging a story in Think Progress, which is a, it's decidedly liberal, but also a very reputable 
publication uh, that's been around for a long time, um, th- flagging that as if it's fake news. Um, so the story in question. Yeah, what was it? Yeah, so so it, it couldn't have been much worse in terms of um, an example of the the type of thing where a conservative outlet shouldn't be policing a liberal outlet. The headline was, Brett Kavanaugh said he would kill Roe v. Wade last week, and almost no one noticed. That again, the headline in Think Progress, this was a September 9th story. And the story is making a case, it's it's an analysis, uh, making the case that Kavanaugh does have in his record a, uh, you know, enough to conclude that he will overturn Roe v. Wade. So they're, they're basically making arguments, really an opinion or analysis story. They're drawing on, on all sorts of factual stuff from his legal history to say, this really isn't uncertain. We do know what he's going to do on Roe v. Wade. Well, the headline just read in a vacuum. I can see how you might think that that's false. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh didn't actually say, I will kill Roe v. Wade last week. Um, which is what the headline says. If you read the story, you understand that it's, again, it's an argument that's being made. So the Weekly Standard reads this. They think, they say, Brett Kavanaugh never said that. That's fake news. And so they flag it. And because the Weekly Standard has signed up as one of the third parties that's part of Facebook's fact-checking system, they get to do this. They have the power to do this along with PolitiFact and the Associated Press and ABC News and a couple others. So this is something that, you know, trolls online have been doing for a while is flagging things that they disagree with. Is is that just what's happening here is that they're kind of well, the weekly standard was trying to game Facebook's fake news flagging algo and and it worked. You know, I I can see how people might think that. I actually don't think that's the case. I think the weekly standard is very sincere about this mm. um and and genuinely believes that people are being misled and that this headline is uh, really just false and misleading. I mean, there's something to it, right? I mean, Facebook itself has basically obliterated the distinctions between news and opinion. If you pick up a newspaper, you read the front page, you know, those are news stories and those headlines are meant to be read as literal fact. You flip to the opinion page and you know that those headlines are the opinion of the author. Well, on Facebook, all those headlines look the same. So if you're looking at this headline as a news headline, then I can see how you would think it was false. I also know the Weekly Standard does believe that um, even the neutral fact-checking organizations like PolitiFact have a liberal bias. I mean, this is something that, that the Weekly Standard really thinks is the case, that they, they just have the, the, these liberal blinkers on, and so their decisions are shaded by their own ideology. Of course, the Weekly Standard's fact-checking operation, which is which is pretty new, um, is uh, guided by their own view of the facts. And so there, this really should be a question of the interpretation of the facts. And I think the Weekly Standard overstepped by calling it false news. But the real issue is that Facebook has given this power two third-party fact-checking organizations. And the Weekly Standard is the only one of those that has an explicit ideological lens. Uh, The others, I know that the Weekly Standard thinks that PolitiFact or the AP lean left, but they are really, uh, you know, their, their goal is to be neutral. So I don't think this is a troll operation. I think this is what happens when uh, people disagree over the interpretation of a, of a big controversy. And it's just not a, a thing where you can binary, you can make a binary ruling that this story is true or false. It's confusing to me because the Weekly Standard is a publication, but it's also been hired by Facebook to be a fact checker. That's right. Yeah. So Facebook do- doesn't, Facebook never wants to make these editorial decisions itself for reasons that we've talked about a lot on the show. And so in this case, it delegated the fact checking to 
a, a bunch of third-party partners. And, and originally, they were PolitiFact, the AP. I'm forgetting a couple of the others right now. But more recently, the Weekly Standard went through this process to get uh, verified. I think it's by the Pointer Institute. Don't quote me on that. Um, but there's a, there is a an independent verification process where you can get yourself certified as an independent uh, fact checker. The Weekly Standard did that, and and now it is one of those battery of fact checkers on Facebook that has the power to flag stories as false. Well, this is going to keep getting messier, especially since Facebook has kind of created this economy of link sharing where the headline is the <laughs> everything about a story, and that's what people see and decide on when they're going to read it, and that's made headlines just incredibly valuable when it comes to the publishing process, and also have made headlines just somewhat incendiary or somewhat uh, sensational in a way that they might not necessarily need to be, but require that in order to get people to click past it. And, you know, I'm not trying to keep saying that, well, this is Facebook's fault, it's Facebook's fault, but but clearly the architecture of the platform, as you said from the outset, uh, has a lot to do with this. And, and, you know, I think that all kinds of publications, not just Think Progress, are in a position where often their headlines do stretch things a bit or or are embellishing things in some way uh, in order to, to to get people to click onto them. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, these are these are problems largely of of Facebook's creation, the sensational headlines, the fact that people can't tell the difference between news and opinion anymore, and now it's just chosen this ham-handed way to try to to try to fix it. It'll be interesting to see how Facebook responds to this outcry. Um, I know if they drop the Weekly Standard, then they'll get it from the other side, and conservatives will will uh, be angry. Um, so it's just it's a problem with no easy solution, and and that is not to let Facebook off the hook because again, it's it's the problem that Facebook made. It there might be a regulatory solution in Facebook's future. We'll see. It's something that we'll continue to cover. Good breakdown on that. Will all right? We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have our interview with Professor Sophia Noble. podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Let's face it, sometimes multitasking can be overwhelming. Like when your favorite podcast is playing and the person next to you is talking and your car fan is blasting, all while you're trying to find the perfect parking spot. But then again, sometimes multitasking is easy, like quoting with Progressive Insurance. They do the hard work of comparing rates so you can find a great rate that works for you, even if it's not with them. Give their nifty comparison tool a try, and you might just find getting the rate and coverage you deserve is easy. All you need to do is visit Progressive's website to get a quote with all the coverages you want, like comprehensive and collision coverage or personal injury protection. Then you'll see Progressive's direct rate and their tool will provide options from other companies, all lined up and ready to compare, so it's simple to choose the rate and coverages you like. Press play on comparing auto rates. Quote at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Our guest today is Professor Sophia Umoja Noble. She is a professor at the University of Southern California Annenberg School of Communication. She's the co-editor of two books, The Intersectional Internet, 
Race, Sex, Culture, and Class Online, and another book called Emotions, Technology, and Design. Her most recent book is Algorithms of Oppression, How Search Engines Reinforce Racism. Professor Noble, thank you so much for coming to If Then. Oh, thanks. Great to be here. So President Trump sent shockwaves through the tech world last month uh, with this tweet where he said that Google's search results were, quote, rigged. Uh, He wrote that Google and others are suppressing voices of conservatives and hiding information and news that is good. They're controlling what we can and cannot see. So that Trump tweet was big news in the tech business because it comes as part of this rising backlash, this conservative backlash against the big Silicon Valley tech uh, platforms. Uh, Conservatives perceive that these platforms are biased against them. Uh, There's actually not much evidence that Google's search engine is ideologically biased. However, there are all sorts of other biases inherent in its search engine. And uh, Dr. Noble, you have written about a lot of these in your book. Can you tell us in what ways is Google's search engine biased in your view? You know, one of the things that I think is a little bit of a misnomer is that people think of search engines uh, as kind of these neutral information portals or brokers. Um, You know, not unlike, I think, in the early days of search engines, when people thought of them as a little bit like the public library, let's say, online, where you could kind of go and find any kind of information, and it would all be um, kind of uh, equally available. And what we know from studying platforms like Google Search, but not just Google, you know, really all of the large commercial search engines, they are, in fact, advertising engines. And so, of course, they optimize content for their clients, people who pay them to optimize that content. And they have robust uh, mechanisms to do that. Google's is AdWords. And, you know, people can pay in a kind of 24 by 7 live auction to optimize content. Um, Certainly, popularity plays a role in the kind of content. And in the case of politics, um, you'll often find large news media organizations are going to be heavily trafficked and um, they will become much more visible than let's say a little tiny blog or a newspaper. So there are a a combination of factors. And I I don't think that uh, Google is particularly ideological. I think its interest is in um, its clients who help pay uh, to optimize content. Certainly in the case of the Trump administration and the current, you know, Republican-controlled Congress, um, the the content around politics was heavily optimized, and I think it, in fact, the evidence shows it was optimized in their favor. Um, we saw a lot of disinformation, for example, um, and misrepresentative information around uh, Trump's opponent Hillary Clinton that was, uh, you know, again technically optimized and optimized with a lot of capital. And that worked in um, his favor, whereas other kinds of evidence and information um, that is really damaging to vulnerable populations is also kind of visible. And those are the things that I think we should really be focused on when we talk about the types of biases that exist in these platforms, which is people who are truly marginalized, not people who are in power. Okay, so I, I want to get into some of those biases uh, that, that you write about so eloquently in your book. Um, but first, I just wanted to clarify. So when you talk about optimized, what does that term, what does that term mean in the context of Google search results? Well, you know, Google reports out that there are about 200 or more factors that go into 
its search algorithm. And of course, they're looking at things like um, popularity, the kinds of links that uh, content has to other types of links. They're looking at um, things like metadata, which uh, people who work in more technical dimensions of information management know that kind of the information about the information uh, that's in the code is also important. Uh, and people who have technical skills are able to kind of maximize that, again, to increase their visibility. Right. I remember like media sites used to uh, put all kinds of keywords, like they would put a keyword 100 times in invisible type on their web page to try to get it c- to come up higher in Google's rankings. Yep. And that was called SEO or search engine optimization. That's exactly right. And of course, that's still um, very relevant in um, it, as the industry changes. And of course, you know, all of the major platforms are really trying to ward off this kind of gamification process that also happens um, because they're interested in uh, you know, not serving up kind of trash, uh, so to speak, you know, in these platforms. But I will say that in the case of people who are truly vulnerable in our society, these are communities who might not have a lot of um, technical resources to do that kind of optimization around content that represents them. And they also might not be in the advertising game of really being able to outspend um, big industries who are also interested in keywords that represent content. And so, you know, in the book, I started out with a f- kind of a very simple example uh, that I had watched and followed for years, which was the case of doing keyword searches on various different um, girls of color in the United States. So it kind of started with black girls. I looked at Asian girls, Latina girls, and over and over again, um, what I found was that the porn industry and, uh, you know, content that was sexually explicit always represented those groups of people in our society. Now, you know, children don't have a lot of money. They can't compete with the porn industry. And even women at a kind of a basic kind of sexism 101, women who were subjects of these sites were coded as girls. So there was no space for girls or adolescents to be fairly represented. And and as you started to add in these kind of racial signifiers like Black or Latina or Asian, um, that content got worse. And so these are the kinds of things that I think um, are the types of biases that I uh, try to showcase and and make real for readers. Now, what year did you uh, do this research and find that Google was doing this? Because I know that it was in 2015, I believe, that Google's photo labeling algorithm marked black people as gorillas. And then before that, we saw search results that would surface mugshots when looking for images of black youth. That's right. So I started uh, my study in 2009. And, uh, you know, the book kind of wrapped up in uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and you know, it takes a time for books to come out. But certainly, along the way, while I was writing the book, there were many failures um, in the platforms, and not just search, but in Google Maps. You might recall that, um, uh, you know, it was kind of went viral on on Twitter that when you did a keyword search on um, the N word house, Google Maps would take you to the White House. This was during the presidency of Barack Obama. Um, of course, the uh, inappropriate tagging of African-Americans as gorillas in Google image search, which ultimately was solved by just um, untagging all of the photos of gorillas 
um, rather than, you know, kind of taking on what, you know, these social dimensions and historical dimensions of what it means to consider African-Americans or black people, um, gorillas or apes or non-human um, monkeys and so forth. I mean, there's a long, you know, storied um, history in the United States and, and beyond of dehumanizing um, people of color and black people in particular. So, you know, these examples continue to surface um, in in our mediascape. And, and uh, certainly um, these things, I think, even predate 2009 when I started the study. And is it still a problem now? Because I remember, you know, without just looking at um, search results around African-American people, there's also uh, it was just at the top of last year that the question of did the Holocaust happen? Google's top search result uh, said that, you know, questioned whether or not it happened. So right. are we still seeing this now? We are seeing this. And, you know, there was a great book written years ago by Jesse Daniels called Cyber Racism, um, where she documented clearly all the ways in the, uh, that kind of white nationalist, white pride, white supremacist um, content, which included Holocaust denial sites um, like Martin Luther King. Um, dot org, which, you know, was a site that many students for years thought was a legitimate website to go to to find about uh, find out information about Dr. King. But in fact, it was a site um, managed by Stormfront, a white nationalist group here in the U.S. And, um, you know, she documented the many ways that uh, these kinds of voices have more voice, quite frankly, online than um, people who are working, you know, in service of their own communities or on kind of anti-racist content. So, you know, again, those phenomena that she studied years ago are still working in favor of, uh, you know, political candidates, let's say, um, who uh, also uh, align themselves with those kinds of tropes. We do see powerful players gaming, you know, the Google system to to try to get top on search results. And in the same way, you know, back in the day, people would name their business, you know, AAA Auto Repair in order to be at the top of the phone book. But now, though, uh, I, I have a question about how this might be baked in on Google's side as well, right? So it, I don't think it's just people uh, who are able to, to optimize their content. But I'm curious if if there also might be some engineering in here on, on the side of Google. And I do know that Google does have abysmal diversity numbers when it does come to their engineering staff. It's true. All right. So and you did you both asked me this question. And I, I it goes without saying that um when you have a low level of knowledge about kind of the impact of uh, your product on society, um, which, you know, is one of the things I argue in the book is that uh, people with a high degree of technical expertise, let's say in computer science or other types of engineering, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they understand the kind of the social, um, political or historical dimensions of their work and the consequences of it. So we know, for example, all throughout Silicon Valley that we kind of have abysmal representation of African Americans and Latinos and um, American Indians in particular. Um, we we also have kind of a, a mistreatment and kind of well-documented um, uh, horror stories that women experience in the, in the Valley. So one of the kind of grand narratives that comes out of the Valley is that um, if we had more people of color and more women who knew how to code, then these problems would be solved. And again, it becomes kind of a technical solutionist, uh, you know, mindset. Pipeline and, problem. You know, I, right. And, you know, I, I really push back on that. Um, for one, 
I don't think you can blame um, the people who are victimized by your product for, uh, you know, what happens to them because they weren't at the table. Um, you know, I know that Google, for example, has invested heavily in um, great organizations like Black Girls Code, for example, and other women's coding organizations. But this then, you know, kind of bolsters this idea that it's, you know, it's the Black children's fault that they didn't learn how to code and therefore come in and properly represent themselves. And, you know, I think that um, even if someone learns how to code, that doesn't mean that they have a deep understanding of the more important issues of sociology, of history, things that one learns in humanities courses and social science courses. And so I always argue strongly that that engineers should have deep interdisciplinary knowledge. And quite frankly, if you're going to design technology for society and you don't know anything about society, you're not qualified to do that job. So we need to have people who have uh, graduate degrees in women's studies and ethnic studies, sociology, history, anthropology, and so forth at the table involved in making these products that just get deployed on society. And then we have to deal with the aftermath. So to get back to Trump's allegations about there being a conservative bias, it seems that if Google is able to be biased in, in you know, su- substantive ways that can be pointed out and proven and have been over the years against folks who are marginalized in society, then why wouldn't Google also be biased against uh, a political ideology that isn't as represented as, as, say, Democrats might be on the Google campus? Well, it's a great question, but I think we have to first look at the evidence that's being provided for this claim that's coming out of the White House, which is kind of a very um, faulty model that basically argues that any media organization, because, you know, again, the criticism that's coming is out, out of the White House is that they don't like the coverage of the administration that's showing up in search engines. And what that means is they don't like the news coverage right. that is being surfaced. And so, you know, I read this much more as an attack on mainstream journalism and public um, uh, and investigative, in particular, journalism than it really is about Google. Google's showing the kinds of um, kind of mainstream news that people are looking for. Now, you know, what is um, concerning is that the administration is kind of using a model where they're basically arguing that any media to the left of, uh, you know, I mean, Breitbart, Infowars, you know, right wing racist media is uh, a left wing media conspiracy. And I think that this argument is much more about kind of attacks on democracy and democratic media institutions, Um, you know, Google being a, a player in facilitating our access to them, certainly online. But this argument is really about keeping people from uh, important in- investigative news and information that is, in, in fact, exposing collusion, corruption, and criminality. And those are the things that I think the administration is um, is wanting the public to uh, not see and, um, and doesn't want attention brought to. Dr. Noble, what might be the solutions to some of the problems you're highlighting? What would a less biased search engine look like or or what could be done given Google's dominance and its lack of diversity and some of the, the structural inequalities that you've you've highlighted? What could be done to to address some of these issues? Well, I think it's, first of all, an illusion to think that we will have these kind of technical solutions to 
the messy project of democracy and fairness and equality in our society. Um, those things are not even worthy of of spending our time on. You know, the issue is not trying to find an unbiased um, algorithm. Um, what we I think we need to be thinking about are what are the consumer protections and the civil rights and human rights protections that need to be legislated, that need to be part of the public policy landscape um, so that people who are harmed truly where that we see the evidence of um, of kind of a denial of rights and a participation in our society or the misrepresentation of communities that leads to, you know, upticks in racial kind of hate, violence uh, and so forth. We need to be thinking about what's the framework or the the policy framework, um, how we're going to respond to that. What we have now are a variety of platforms that are kind of unleashed on the world. And after the fact, when the harm is caused, then we're trying to kind of scramble to figure out how to tweak the algorithm rather than thinking about um, do we want some of these projects to exist? How would we go about um, regulating those environments just the way we regulate pharmaceuticals or automotive industries or other types of industries that can really create a significant harm to the public? Um, we have not caught up with the technologies when we think about the public policy realm. And this, to me, is a really an important, intense place where we need to focus um, because we will continue to see more and more evidence of harm and we will not have the recourse that we need for it. Right. And we're talking about, you know, Alphabet being one of the most powerful companies in the world and largely unregulated when it comes to the public interest. Professor Noble, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. One final quick break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. It's real cash that never expires or loses value. Apply for Apple Card in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Daily cash is available via Apple Cash Card issued by Green Dot Bank member FDIC or as a statement credit. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Okay, it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. Will, what do you have open that you could not close this week? My tab this week comes from The New Yorker. They did one of their classic long-read profiles of Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. The author Evan Osnos managed to get invited to Zuckerberg's house in Palo Alto. The two sat down, talked about a wide range of subjects. Uh, Osnos also talked to dozens of Zuckerberg's friends and associates to try to give us a flesh-and-blood picture of this figure who often comes across as, well, sort of robotic or, or not real. Um, and he has a public image that is not very human. And so we get anecdotes in this story like the time that Zuckerberg was playing a friend's teenage daughter in a game of Scrabble on a plane and she beat him. Zuckerberg, so competitive and also ever interested in the ways that you can automate problems, proceeded to sit down and write a quick computer program that would look up all of his letters in the dictionary so that he could see at a glance a bunch of different words that he could use. And then he beat uh, the girl in the next game of Scrabble. 
Uh, he also tells the author of an Osnos that one of the historical figures he's fascinated by is Augustus, uh, the, the, the Roman emperor. And he gets really animated when he's talking about the trade-offs that Augustus had to make in order to bring about 200 years of world peace. He did this partly through some brutality. And Zuckerberg seems like maybe he's okay with that. So it's an interesting picture of a guy who is now making complex decisions about what we can say and what type of, type of news we will see on behalf of 2.2 billion people around the world. So there was some criticism of this uh, of this article, though, right? And that it was just incredibly long and it just didn't reveal that much. Yeah. I mean, a criticism that I heard that, that resonated with me somewhat is like, okay, so we get a little bit of a more human picture of this person. But does it really scrutinize the machine that he's built and the flaws in that machine? It, it seems like the effect of the story might be to make you sympathetic toward Mark Zuckerberg. You think maybe he's a decent guy, he's well-intentioned, but there is a concern that that risks masking the really insoluble issues in the technology that he's built. I mean, he's built something that a decent, well-intentioned computer engineer can't fix. And I think that does actually come across in the story. Uh, but I, I get the criticism that maybe maybe it was a little soft focus, that maybe it was a, a little bit sympathetic um, toward, toward the person just because he uh, comes across as a decent guy when you sit down and have banana bread with him in his living room. Yeah, I, I would imagine it would be hard for me to to kind of sling harsh criticisms at anybody if I'm in their living room and, and sitting across the table from them and they let me interview them like that. But uh, but that's kind of what we're supposed to to get from this. Not just harsh criticisms, but really a, a, a clear understanding that's useful, uh, that tells us things we didn't know before. And and I and I haven't had a chance to read this yet, but I've I've heard criticisms that there's really not a lot new in here. Yeah, I mean, if you followed Facebook and Zuckerberg as closely as we have, I think that's probably true. I think as a primer for people who are only, only passingly familiar with with him and his company and the controversies they've been embroiled in, I think it could have a lot of value. I also did think that Osnos did, it, did a decent job. I mean, it, it was a little bit soft and mushy in parts, but it, the writing is very good. And he did a decent job, I, I think, of highlighting the big picture. One passage I want to highlight is, uh, is this one, quote, I found Zuckerberg straining, not always coherently, to grasp problems for which he was plainly unprepared, including the meaning of truth, the limits of free speech, and the origins of violence. I thought the article did a fair job of highlighting the fact that he's created for himself problems that no person, let alone Zuckerberg, is, is equipped to deal with. I guess in general, I'm just critical of this kind of like access <laughs> type work. I, I would rather see investigations of Facebook. I would rather see investigations of its executive team that could then reveal truths that would hopefully put legislatures in a corner and force them to do something about this company that is clearly like hurting public discourse across the world in such real and tangible ways. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I haven't read it yet, and I, and I look forward to, and it's a tab I have open as well. So, And I, I get that. I do think there's value, though, in, in understanding the person as well. I, I wouldn't want it to obscure sure. the, the problems with the technology or the platform. But, I mean, the same way we try to understand people who commit acts of terrorism and where they might be coming from and the fact that they're real people, it's sometimes easy, I think, when we see Facebook do something that seems indefensible to just assume that Zuckerberg is evil or that he's a robot or whatever else. He's not. I mean, he's a human who, who is uh, just facing issues that, that he's not prepared to handle. 
And I guess I should clarify something. I realized I may have just compared Mark Zuckerberg to a terrorist. I don't think he's a terrorist. My point was just that you can understand the humans behind actions, and it doesn't have to take away from evaluating the actions on their own terms as well. Sure, sure. And I don't mean to quiz you about something I haven't read yet. So I, I do look forward to to reading it. And I just am always a little skeptical of uh, of of these types of long profiles because, uh, well, just because of the reasons that I said earlier. But my tab is is a bit different. It is also very long. And I don't think, uh, have you had a chance to read this yet? It's the anatomy of .ai. It's an art project, actually. No, I haven't. And a 21-part essay. <laughs> no, I, I have not read the 21-part essay. I'm impressed that you did. I did look at the the artwork at the top of the webpage, and it's gorgeous. I want to put this on, I want to like frame it and put it on the wall of my office. Yeah, so it's by Kate Crawford and Vladin Joler. I might be mispronouncing his last name there. Uh, Two academics. Uh, Kate Crawford is with the AI Now Institute, which I should say uh, is in part supported by Google and Microsoft Research. Uh, So just to put that out there. But this is an essay that uh, breaks down in a map and an art project that breaks down actually the anatomy of the Amazon Echo. Um, which is an incredibly complex uh, AI device because it kind of puts you in a situation where you're um, both the consumer and you're also a piece of research for the company. And uh, they this essay just breaks down the in- incredible complexities of our relationship with this one little black box. Yeah, I love that they're looking at Alexa and the Echo for this because it, it really, it's like this oracle on your on your kitchen counter and uh it's this disembodied intelligence and i love the idea of trying to map what actually is involved in that intelligence and the hardware right and and they get just they get into the materials that go into making this right uh they go into um like this kind of really beautiful lyrical language to describe it and it really is a uh, just an intensely um, captivating read. It really kind of makes the reader understand our, our dependencies on things that we truly do not understand. And it really brought that to light. So, uh, and when we depend on things that we don't understand in a way, we, we, we lack a level of freedom. And, uh, and, and that's kind of something that we give up when we, use, when we use these technologies and we turn to these companies uh, for things like communication. All right. And I guess that's why we have our show is trying to help make sense of and understand all these technologies that, that shape our lives in unseen ways. All right, and that does do it for our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to our guest, Safia Umoja Noble. You can find her on Twitter at Safia Noble. That's S-A-F-I-Y-A-N-O-B-L-E. And major thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time in doing so. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music is by Doug Chase. Thanks to Adam Munoz at Fantasy Studios here in Berkeley. And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware. We'll see you next week. Bye, y'all.